Aloha, and welcome to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph is back with a message entitled, That Place of Protection. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and now, here's Pastor Ralph. There's somebody that is bound to go, Ralph's going to seed on this thing, and he's, he's lost his mind, and he's just going to talk about the devil for the rest of his life. And no, I'm not. But the truth is, if I did this series in six weeks, I would inoculate you against a certain kind of truth. And I need to take enough time that you begin to see different scripture. And my challenge is this. Somebody came up this morning and said, you know, that their husband's having a hard time believing in some of what I'm saying and we give too much credit to the devil and all that. The challenge is this. Look at your Bible and tell me what am I saying that's disagreeing with the page that you're reading. What we really need to do is expand our vision and perhaps change our parameter. Most of us have this very, very limited vision of the spiritual world. Everything on the dark side we sort of push off because we don't want to deal with it. Which leaves us a little bit crippled when it comes to explaining evil or when it comes to explaining wrong things that happen in our life. Something bad goes down and our immediate reaction is to say, oh, four-letter word for a lot of us. And that'll get you nowhere. And for some of us, our reaction is to go, why is God doing this to me? Which immediately positions you to not trust God in the future. If God did some dirty thing to you last week, what's he going to do next week? And you have an inadequate explanation for the events that occur in your life. Can I say that again? You have an inadequate explanation for the events that occur in your life. You're blaming God. Or you back off a step and go, why did God allow this to happen? Now you have a little room for Satan there, but you again are blaming God. God somehow is instrumental in something bad happening to your life. And you know that's going to erode your faith. How can you trust a God like that? And it clearly is in violation of what Jesus said. Jesus said, and I want to say this verse every time I get up here, that Satan is a, a liar, a thief, and a killer. He says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's what he wants to do to you. And then Jesus said, my purpose is that you could have life and have it abundantly. God wants you to have a fulfilling, satisfactory, successful prosperous life. He wants every relationship in your life to work. Satan wants to undermine and tear apart anything that God is doing. And so when we sit around and go, oh, God's doing this to me, for one, we're just sort of wimping out. We'll roll over and let Satan kick us around. But for another, we just have a terribly inadequate explanation for what's going on in the world. Now, you look at the scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, Verse 10, I'm starting here week after week. I'm trying to drill this one into our heads. He says, a final word, be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on all of God's armor 
so that you will be able to stand firm against all of the strategies and tricks of the devil. This is the arena. You stand firm against strategies, against tricks, against the lies of the devil, against the evil thing that he'll do to sort of knock you off your props and undermine your trust in God. Verse 12, we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood. Something goes haywire in your business. Somebody in your family gets mad at you. Somebody lies to you. Somebody does something that wounds you. You heard Sarah give her testimony this morning about how all these people sort of turned against her in her high school. It says, we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. If somebody does you wrong, rather than get mad at them, you ought to pray for them. We were sitting in this room the other day with a bunch of pastors, and, and this one guy kind of confessed, I'm always complaining about the, our educational system in Hawaii. I'm always complaining about the government. I'm always complaining about labor unions. I'm always complaining about the ACLU. And God has convicted me of the wrong of that. See, this verse says, you're not fighting against these people when things go wrong. You need to pray for these people because those people are being held in the clutches of somebody who wants to destroy them and destroy you through them. Does that make sense? And so he comes along and he says in verse 13, use every piece of God's armor, resist the enemy in the time of evil so that after the battle, there is a battle, there is a war, there is a conflict. After the battle, you'll be standing firm. God's goal is when the shooting's over, you're standing up. That you don't get waylaid. That you're not knocked down. You're not knocked out of it. And then it says, stand your ground. And it goes on from there. Stand your ground. That you come to a place where you stand against the enemy. You know, there's this, there's this scene in Braveheart. All these Scotsmen are, are lined up and they, they look like they're unarmed. And there's these British soldiers that are well armed and they're riding down on them. It looks, and they got their swords out. And it looks like they're just going to trample them to death if they don't cut their heads off. And, and they're coming and they're coming and they're coming. And you know how the movie makes it go back and forth. And, and at the last possible moment, these seemingly unarmed individuals just let out a huge roaring yell and a shout. And they reach down and they pick up what they've prepared on the ground is, is tree branches about four inches in diameter that are, that are really sharp pointed on the end. And they just plant themselves. And you know what happens to horses and riders. There's no way of turning back now. They just, they just plunge themselves right into, you know, they're impaled on these posts. This is a picture of standing your ground. It's something that you do aggressively. It's not something that you do lightly. You know, in the last two years, I, every year I, I read a lot, a lot of books. But every year you, I'll, I'll hit some book that just, you know, sometimes you're lucky and you get two of them. But some book that really, really lights your fire. And, and uh, there, there, the, the year before it was a book called Waking the Dead. And it actually addresses some of what we're talking about here today. But there's a book that is, is called um, Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. How many of you know who Joel Osteen is? The rest of you, 
tonight sometime sit around TV and play with the little channel clicker. This is the only way I know how to find Joel Osteen. I don't know where you watch him or what time. All I know is, is I'm channel surfing. Every so often you hit this, this kind of tall, skinny, skinny-faced young guy in a blue suit and he talks with a southern drawl and he's always smiling and he seems just real easy to listen to. Stop and pay attention. And while you're there, take a look around at what's going on as they pan the audience and, and, and take note of the fact that there's 22,000 people sitting in Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. They bought the old Houston Rockets Arena. These people are on a tear. But Joel's book is incredible, especially in the first five or six chapters. He, he talks about us making a stand against the Lord. And as you listen to him preach, one of the things that you see is, is he, he's got these little... They're usually scriptures that he's quoting. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These declarative prayers. I'm, I'm hanging on to the promises of God. I am trusting God that my life will work. I am trusting God that my children will turn out right. I'm trusting God that he'll bless my business and he'll best bless my relationships. I'm defying Satan. I know that the victory belongs to the Lord. Those kinds of things. And there comes a place where you step out in faith and you stand your ground. And it becomes a protection to you against the, the strategies and the tricks that defeat the demoralization, the despair, the depression, the anxiety that Satan wants to throw your way and just throw you a curveball and mess you up. And, and you learn to stand, and you learn to stand firmly and aggressively against him in your faith. Does that make sense to you? And so this becomes a place of, of safety, a place of refuge. We're talking about today that place of protection that we have in God. I wrap myself in the promises of God, and I stand against the enemy. The second part of this talks about our being armed with citizenship. I want you to flip just a couple of pages in your Bible toward the, toward the back end to um, Philippians chapter 1, the end of the chapter. And this is the same scripture that Carl taught out of last week, and we intentionally taught different parts. He's, he's teaching about not being intimidated by your enemies. I want to talk about being citizens of heaven. Verse 27, Paul says, Whatever happens to me, you must live in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ as citizens of heaven. Look at verse 30. We're in this fight together, spiritual warfare. We're in this fight together. You've seen me suffer for him in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of a great struggle. Oh, what is this all about? What struggle is going on? The, the struggle is, is, a, is two empires coming together. It's the empire of darkness. I mean, it's, it's in most movies that we ever watch. Surely action movies. I mean, you know, the empire in Star Wars. There's, there's the kingdom of light. There's the kingdom of evil. And we're caught in the middle someplace. We're on one side or the other. And, and, and Paul understands that the greatest act of spiritual warfare, if you please, would be that of, of introducing somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and rescuing them from, from the, the person that would destroy their family or destroy their marriage or destroy their life through alcohol or ruin their business through conflict, whatever. And that you bring them into a relationship with the Lord. And so Paul's in the midst of this struggle. But as, as we look at this verse, it says that you are citizens of heaven. That means that you've transferred your allegiance from one kingdom to another. 
My citizenship is something that has to do with my loyalty. If someone moves here from England, say, and they decide to be an American citizen, they go through this process of learning what it's all about to be an American, and at some point they formally declare that they have transferred their allegiance from that country to that country. And so you have a loyalty to God and he has a loyalty to you. Along with citizenship, you get certain civil rights. You know, this morning's newspaper is talking about our right to have an open government. That government can't just do things and then cloak them in secrecy. And that you have channels that you can go through to cause the government to be responsive to you. You have civil rights and the government has to, must recognize those rights. As somebody who is a member of a, a citizen of heaven, a member of God's kingdom, then my, my bill of rights are the promises that are in the Bible. And there comes a place where when things are going wrong, I begin to stand on the promises of God. And God has obligated himself to you and me that he will respond to prayers made in faith based on those promises. Does that make sense to you? Now, as I read this, you know, if you just read through and you don't know a, a little background of the Bible, you might want to write where it says citizens of heaven. Just write down Acts chapter 16. Let me tell you what's there. It's very significant. Paul is in jail in Rome as he writes this. He has been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. A riot broke out as a result of that. He's accused of inciting a riot, which in the old Roman system was a capital crime. You'd die for that. He has been fooled around with in court after court. Finally, he says, I appeal my case to the emperor. It's like saying to the Supreme Court here. And to the emperor, you must go, the person says. And, and so Paul has, has moved to Rome, and he's appealed his case in Rome. And as he's writing to the church in Philippi, he's writing on what most Bible scholars believe is the eve of his sentencing. Tomorrow he will find out, is he guilty or not guilty? Does he live or does he die? And he's already gone to the highest court in the land, so there's no more court of appeals. And those people, from all we know of history, did not fool around when it came to executing somebody. If they say he's going to die tomorrow, he may be dead by next Thursday. And as he writes to the church in Philippi, he says to them, don't be intimidated by your enemies. He's talking about satanic enemies. This is a sign to them of their destruction, your victory. So you talked about last week. He writes to them and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Five times he says to rejoice. On the night before, he's going to find out, does he live or die? He writes and says, I'm not sure if it's better to live or die. If I live, I get to hang out with you. If I die, I get to go hang out with Jesus. That's better. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And then he says right here, Whatever happens to me, you act like citizens of heaven. You stand up and be who you are. Don't cave in. Well, that would be very meaningful to the church in Philippi because as Paul went to Philippi, he began to share the gospel with a few people. He found people who were willing to listen, who were hungry for God, and he began to, to share Christ with them. And they would meet in this place down by the river where there was business going on, where people were doing their laundry, right out in the open in the marketplace, much like what we've been doing in our church, having little prayer cells meeting in the marketplace around town. People are aware of this. And he rises up some problems. There, 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 there's demonic adversary comes along. 
There's a young woman who is possessed of a devil, the Bible says, a demon, a fallen angel, and she's able to tell people's fortunes, and she's making a lot of money for people who own her. She's a slave. And the spirit inside of her recognizes the spirit of the Lord in Paul and Silas, and she begins to to mock them and taunt them. Everything she says is true. It's the way that she's saying it. She makes a big scene out of, these men are followers of the living God. You know, and, 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 and day after day after day, this happens. Finally, Paul turns to her one day, and you almost get the feeling it's in frustration and anger, and he speaks to the spirit inside of her and says, you have to leave. Now, here's the weird part. Something happened to that woman that day that caused her owners to say we've lost our source of income. Now you can debate forever about do you believe in evil spirits or not, but what happened to the woman that day? Why is it that Paul got a beating for doing this? Something happened. There was positive results. And and so she was delivered of the thing that was tormenting her. Silence comes. Her employers are all uptight. They go out and they make accusation against Paul. Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrates, publicly humiliated and beaten, thrown into jail. And the Bible says they were in an inner room in the jail and their hands and feet were in stocks. You know those wooden things with the holes in them and they, they lock them. They, instead of, of, of caving to this whole thing, begin to do what you guys talked about last week in church. They start to praise the Lord loudly. They're not giving in to this. They, they honor God in spite of their circumstances. God responds, and the Bible says that a curious thing happened. There was an earthquake, but an earthquake that shook the locks loose on the prison doors and shook the locks loose on their stocks. Now, I've been in earthquakes before. I used to live in California, but I never saw any lock ever get open because of an earthquake. And, and the jailer comes running out, realizes the doors are open to the prison, he lives in a system that's very vicious. If he loses a prisoner, he's going to lose his life in a, through torture. And so it's the easy way out for him to just lay the, the butt of his sword on the ground and then fall on his sword and let it run through the gut. He's ready to do that. Paul says, stop, we're all here. Paul leads the guy to the Lord that night and baptizes him in the prison. The man comes and ministers to the needs and the wounds of these people, tries to, to, to do whatever he can to help heal them. Morning comes, and the magistrates send word to Paul and Silas. They did all of this to intimidate them. They had no case against them. They did all this to intimidate them. And that's what often happens to us. When Satan throws a curve our way, it's to intimidate us. And the magistrates send word and say, tell those people they can leave. They're free to go. And Paul responds to the messenger. And he says, you're going to beat me, a Roman citizen? You're going to publicly humiliate me, a Roman citizen? And then just quietly tell me I can get out of your jail? No, I know my rights. You've done something wrong. I know my rights. If you want me out of your jail, then you publicly come down and politely ask me to leave. And then I'll think about leaving your jail. And he humiliates the rulers of that city. And they come down and they make a big procession and they ask him to leave. And they ask him to leave the city. And he 
agrees to leave after he goes back and organizes the Christians into a church. Now, the people in Philippi, when they read the letter from Paul about you act like citizens of heaven, are going to think back to Paul acting like a citizen of Rome. See, in the Roman system, if you were part of the conquered lands in the empire, you had no citizenship. You were either born a citizen or you could work your way and buy your citizenship. In fact, the, the man who had done the beating, the, or he, he was the, the, in control of the people who were actually whipping Paul, the Roman sergeant, if you would, uh, he, he's a marveling that Paul has Roman citizenship. He says, I worked hard, I bought my citizenship. Paul says, I was born a citizen. Paul understands citizenship. The, the church in Philippi understands citizenship. You have certain rights. And you and I need to, to come to a place where we come to the Lord and we kind of wrap ourselves in those promises that God makes us. This is why you read your Bible. Good night. You know, there's this whole, you know, I, I read my Bible to please God. I go through all these things that I have to do. Nonsense. Nonsense. I, I have my Bible all marked up. Because there's places in I want to remember when the going gets tough, I want to know what God says about the going. Does that make sense? You got room for a little more? Let's go one last place. We're going to go to Psalm 37. It talks about the place of protection. Psalm 37, kind of almost in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a good idea to get familiar with Psalms. There's a lot of promises and wonderful things in here. This is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. The very end of the chapter, it starts out by saying, don't worry, trust in the Lord. Verse 39 says, the Lord saves the godly, and he is their fortress in times of trouble. When it says fortress, just write down 1 Samuel. Just that. You can go look at someday. Read the whole book of 1 Samuel. It's full of intrigue, violence, seduction, rape, murder. It's, it's like reading a Robert Ludlum spy novel to read First uh, and Second Samuel. It's very exciting. The Lord saves the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in him. It would be better read if you crossed off the word and in the last sentence and wrote, he saves them because they find shelter in him or because they take refuge in him. God will save you if you go to him when there's trouble. He won't save you if you don't. The Bible says in the New Testament, we have not because we ask not. I take refuge in the Lord, he rescues me. I refuse to take refuge in the Lord. I'm on my own. You know, I, I can be a pretty self-motivated, self-determined, self-controlled person. It's exactly the opposite of what God really wants from me. God wants me to, to express my dependency on Him and live in dependency on Him. Now, you could go to Proverbs chapter 3 and it tells you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in everything you do, and he'll direct your paths. And 10 verses later, it says, don't forsake good planning. God's not telling us to check our brain at the door. We're still supposed to plan. We're supposed to, 
do all the stuff that we do, prepare for things, but we're supposed to do it with an eye to what is God saying. We go to God as our place of safety. We go to God as, as a leader of our life. But when it says the word fortress there, do you see the word fortress in your Bible? First verse, it says that, that God is a fortress to us. Well, if, what do you have in your mind when you think of, of a fortress? If, you're, you know, if you grew up in the 1950s watching Rin Tin Tan on TV, you think of a, of a, of a U.S. Army cavalry fort in the middle of the, 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 the prairies of North Dakota someplace. That's a, that's a fort, but that's not what this is talking about. Or maybe you've been on a trip to Europe and you've seen medieval castles and, and they're fortresses. But that's not what this is talking about. When the Bible uses the word fortress here, this is why I gave you the reference of, of, of 1 Samuel. You see, throughout 1 Samuel, David, who would become king of Israel, always hiding in the stronghold. That's the word that's used here in the original language where it says fortress. Write the word stronghold in your Bible above it. And David would always retreat to the stronghold of En Gedi. And Gedi is a place in southeast Israel that's dry and barren. It's on the way to Saudi Arabia. There's very little there. It's rocky. It's pockmarked with caves and canyons. We don't know exactly what was the stronghold of En Gedi. It could have been a cave. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 